This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another edition of Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new movies in theaters or streaming and compares them to films from days gone by. And today, Elvis is everywhere. That's right, we've seen the new Elvis movie, the biopic directed by Baz Luhrmann. And uh, we'll be talking about that and some other Elvis-related films, including the King's Own movies, coming up. Uh, I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an entertainment journalist here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we'll be right back after this. And stick around. Thank you. Thank you very much. Elvis is in the building. He is in the building today on our Elvis-centric and Elvis-related film podcast, uh, Lends Me Your Ears. And Stephen, thank you so much for suggesting this this way to go. Of course, it's prompted by Baz Luhrmann's new biopic, uh, musical biopic, Elvis, in cinemas now. Uh, we're also, as you mentioned, we're going to talk about some of Elvis's movies. I had no idea until we started looking into this that he had so many features 30 how many 30 something 32 i think i think it was making like three a year at the peak of the 60s it was definitely quantity over quality for many of those years unfortunately but uh he was prolific and uh elvis fans do have a soft spot in their hearts for those films even the terrible ones thankfully we did not watch the terrible ones <laughs> uh but uh well we, that's we, debatable uh, well, it's all relative. Isn't it? <laughs> but see, it, yeah, well, see, I haven't seen, I've only seen a few. In fact, I may, I think I've only seen the two that we watched for this episode. I don't know that I've, I thought I'd seen another. But anyway, for sure that the two that we've watched, and one of them I thought was abysmal. Um, so, you know. We'll, <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I, I should have made you watch Clam Bake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then that was when I was thinking, gosh, if this is one of the good ones. I wonder what the bad ones oh, are like. Oh, yeah, you should see, um, uh, what is it, um, Easy Come, Easy Go, where Elvis sings. Yoga is as yoga does with the great Elsa Lanchester. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you know, maybe one day. Uh, but we're we'll, <laughs> we'll also going to talk about Elvis adjacent movies. You know, the Elvis, uh, the myth, the legend has had a powerful impact on popular culture. And of course, that's sept, seeped in, sept, seeped, seeped in, sept, sept. What's the past tense of seep? seep. Uh, crept into the crept. crypt and. There we go. Crap. Yeah, mm. I appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, that'll do. Uh, So yeah, we'll talk about a couple of those at least in our final segment. But yeah, let's start with the biopics. We got a couple of them to discuss. There's a, I discovered there's actually a biopic series called Elvis the Early Years. We did not get to that, but that's somewhere out there in the world. We did get to the uh, Kurt Russell, uh, John Carpenter Elvis from 1979. We should start with the new feature, however, directed by Baz Luhrmann, written by Luhrmann and Sam Bromwell, Craig Pierce, and Jeremy Donner, or Donaire. It's a musical biopic of Elvis Presley and I mean, I was looking forward to it. I should say probably that, like, I've never been the King's biggest fan. There are a number of his songs I really like. A Little Less Conversation is is a favorite of mine. Certainly, you know, his early hits, I can't deny their power and uh, and their longevity. But I'm not, like, a hardcore Elvis fan. Obviously, if I was, I would have seen more of his movies. But I was curious to see the way I certainly know his story. It's a, it's a tragedy. It's an American tragedy, this incredibly popular, incredibly influential and uh, celebrated and creative individual. 
you know, never really found lasting happiness, uh, either as a as a musician or as a, a public figure. I think in some ways he was maybe not cut out to be as huge a star as he as he was. I think he just he wanted to make music and and eventually he wanted to be an actor and he did he did both of those things and you'd think that might make him happy. He was he was married, he had kids, you know, there was a lot that he could have had been happy about. But all the stories I've heard about Elvis were that he was generally pretty miserable, especially the last few years of his life. Yeah, it's true. It's it's that kind of rags to riches and then emotional rags kind of story. And it just, it feels like, uh, you know, maybe if his mother hadn't died when he was still pretty young, things might have been different. It feels like that's kind of the demarcation point. His mother passing away, uh, which of course is depicted in both of these biopics, uh, happens around the same time that he goes into the army. So it's hard to tell which of those two things, because that's obviously a pivot in his life where after he comes out of the army, he's a very different person. He's got all the kind of the rough edges have been sanded off of him and and uh, he just kind of goes along with whatever the movie making and music making machine asks of him pretty much. Or that's what it seems like, at least for the, the next uh, decade or so, at least until the comeback special in 68. So it seems like he was he was set up to be really huge and then it just has the wind knocked out of his sails at the very peak of his career, uh, you know, he, there was no one bigger than him when he got uh, drafted. And it's just, it's just hard to imagine something like that happening. Can you imagine if Justin Bieber had gotten drafted after his first record or something like that? Like maybe the world would have been a better place. Hard to say, but <laughs> the, uh, but it, just to, to have somebody who was so huge taken out of the equation like that. It, I mean, it, you might want to subscribe to his conspiracy theory about that. It, you yeah, know, no, I'm not gonna. You know, okay. Let's yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, just a chance, but uh, it's, you know, everything seemed to change at that moment. And it, and after that, uh, even, you know, meeting Priscilla, the love of his life and getting married and having a daughter, Lisa Marie, it just seemed like nothing uh, could really turn him around. You know, he just kind of was on that spiral. And it seemed like maybe when he was on stage might have been the only time that he he truly came alive. At least that's the impression we get from any documentaries and, and uh, books and other things that have been put out about him over the years. Yeah, and that's the vibe I get from this movie, from Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. And and that's the part of the movie I actually enjoyed was the live performances, especially early on where he, you know, Elvis is trying to bring his sound to the the stage and be a working musician. And uh, he is having this incredible effect on audiences. That stuff I thought was great. You know, and I appreciate Baz Luhrmann bringing this high energy style. He, you can't deny there's a certain amount of that is entertaining. You know, I call it sort of caffeinated or very sugary, the way that there's constantly hyper-edited montages of, as a storytelling trope. And that's what he goes with. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that. But about halfway in, I started to realize this whole movie is montage. It makes the <laughs> key mistake of biopics, which is instead of focusing in, down in on a small period of time that somehow il- illustrates broader themes within a person's life, it starts in the mid-50s and ends in the mid-70s and you know, you just never get much time or much depth with anything. I started to get really annoyed with it about halfway in, and I started to realize, oh, that's, this is what it's all going to be, this sort of surface, soapy, insubstantial, glitzy pick, and it's going to hit everything from Elvis the Pelvis to Elvis shooting the TV. It's like all the, the, <laughs> the greatest hits are there, but you don't actually get any, I don't feel anything for anybody, and this is... The problem that I had with it, I thought it was a pretty terrible movie as a result. I just was really frustrated with it. And and, and let's face it, I think Tom Hanks is wildly miscast as Colonel Tom Parker. He's he's like this, uh, you know, he's in the suit is and the nose is, is totally distracting because... 
well, we all know what Tom Hanks looks like, and it's the physical aspect of of this character and the accent and all that stuff just distracts from, I think, his performance of what he's trying to do, and I don't think it works at all. And and the, having him telling the story throughout, you know, the crux of of Colonel Tom's story is that he, you know, he he is a showman and he is going to sell Elvis to the world and he's got this big plan to do it. And and then it becomes sort of like he thinks his show business is a show snow job. He's he's just scamming people and he's going to take their money and it's all going to work out and it's it's great. And he kind of sells Elvis on that and then he sells the world on Elvis. And I, I felt like that was the whole film subtext that as ticket buyers, we're just the next audience to be snowed by the business of show. And who cares if any of it actually happened or any of it's true or 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 what? Like there's a cynicism here that um, I actually might have been okay with if that's if it was entertaining throughout, but it just I ended up resenting being taken for a ride by overlong schlock. Well, yeah, the the problem. I mean, I really enjoyed the film. I have to say, or in like two thirds of it, I was really with it, and then it it really bogs down towards the end because it just kind of gets stuck in Vegas and this battle between Elvis and the Colonel, which did happen, but not necessarily in the way it's portrayed. But it 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 feels like that's not necessarily what should have been the focus. You're right. It should have been more on the performance, on the artists, you know, maybe a little bit more about the man under the the rhinestone studded cape uh, to some degree. I, uh, I, I did get kind of a queasy feeling, you know, when it starts out and it's so heavy on Colonel Tom's point of view, because of course, you know, Colonel Tom never told a straight story in his life. You know, he's the ultimate, uh, unreliable narrator, even in reality he was, you know, when, when you, you see the the odd interview with him that he did do, and you can tell he's just kind of lying through his teeth. Uh, so here we've, you know, we've got him basically in charge of the story here. And, uh, you know, obviously he was controlling things from behind the scenes, but I don't know if he was the best uh, window into Elvis as a person and as an artist, because he, you know, he, as he says, he didn't know anything about movies or, or um, making music, and he left all that to other people, you know, as long as the movie stayed within budget. And, uh, you know, and Elvis... Uh, didn't spend too much time in the studio. So uh, it is not necessarily the best uh, viewpoint to take of uh, Elvis and his career. But, you know, when it works, it really works. You know, the, the, and I wish they'd spent more time on, on the earlier part of Elvis's life. I mean, you've got this young guy, Austin Butler, very talented. Yeah, know, his performance great, is pretty awesome, I know, will admit. Yeah, for sure. Like they should have, you know, they should have taken advantage of using him to play Elvis in his prime a little bit longer, I felt. I felt like maybe maybe the later stuff could have been a coda or something like that, or or, or not dwelled on as heavily. You know, just take advantage of the age of your actor and 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 delve because there's so many more stories to be told from uh, from that part of Elvis's life. I mean, the, his time in the army is you know it's over. I think you know like two or three scenes in the the 60s. I mean, the bulk of the 60s is is a two minute montage and that's it. And that's of course. Uh, you know, some people are fine with that because they feel it's a pretty insubstantial part of his career. But, you know, it would have been cool to have the scene of, you know, where Elvis actually met the Beatles. They came to his house in Beverly Hills, and that would have been an interesting thing to portray. But, uh, but for whatever reason, Baz doesn't want to go there. He's just not interested in that period at all. He, he I guess, maybe just feels it isn't the high drama of the early years and then the later years where everything kind of went into that downward spiral. But, uh, but for the most part, I mean, because of the bravura of the filmmaking for most of its running time and uh, and because of Austin Butler, I, I, I came away really liking the film, apart from the, you know, the, the inevitable bummer ending of Elvis's sad final years. Uh, and 
Tom Hanks's performance is very odd. Uh, you know, it's when you, when I, I watched a Colonel Tom interview, and he he didn't seem to have the pronounced Dutch accent to the same degree that uh, Hanks has it here. Like it, it, it seems like you know the the caricature of, of Colonel Tom is just maybe pushed a little too far. But that's Baz Luhrmann's style, I guess. I mean, he's all about caricature and pushing things uh, over the top a bit to kind of make it memorable, make it pop, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I guess we weren't going to get a re- realistic portrayal there. Well, you know, I, I got to say that I've never been a huge Baz Luhrmann fan. Like, I, I wasn't on the Moulin Rouge train. I thought The Great Gatsby was pretty terrible. The less said about his, his film Australia, the better. <laughs> well, um, yes, definitely. But, you know, I think what really bo- bothered me about this film, now I understand that Elvis grew up, uh, you know, in a, in a so- southern community where he was inspired by black culture. Uh, but I felt like the film was just offensive in how it uses black characters, including B.B. Uh, King, uh, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., as sort of shorthand for some kind of cultural authenticity in Presley's music. I mean, Elvis wasn't really a songwriter. He was an interpreter. So the fact that he covered music by black musicians, making the songs palatable for white audiences, somehow, does that make him cool this in 2022? I, I would argue the opposite it is true, whatever the movie wants you to believe. It's like all of a sudden Elvis is somehow authentic because he's borrowing from black artists. And I mean, this has always been part of his legacy, I guess, but it just seems like a f- interesting way to sell the, the story now. And in a way that I just, I think they could have done that a lot better. Not to mention the sort of middle act scenes where Elvis is being left behind by the changing times, but he's, you know, he's making movies instead of playing live music and is appalled watching Robert F. Kennedy get shot on TV and it tries to sell us that Elvis was affected by the violence and civil rights issues, hence performing If I Can Dream on his 68 comeback special, you know, and, and I just was like yeah, no I'm, I'm just not buying any of that it just feels, it feels really um, inauthentic in a way that kind of bugged me, so. Well, I, I you know, again, Basil Luhrmann is picking and choosing you know, cherry picking the, the the moments that he wants to portray. And I, I think there was, you know, some truth in, in that. And, you know, the, they don't go to, into it in this film, but Elvis doing, you know, in the ghetto uh, by Mac Davis as a response to, to the, you know, the deaths of people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. So it, I feel like there is a nugget of truth there, but then uh, I, I, I'd agree that Baz kind of exploits it to make it seem more relevant than it might actually be. But, uh, you know, as, as far as the appropriation thing goes, well, I guess the thing that made Elvis great was that he united these kind of American art forms of country and R&B and, you know, that's... that's had a baby and called it rock and exa- roll. Had a baby and called it rock and roll. You know, the, but the, the, I mean, the, the scene where, like, young Elvis is hanging out with the, the, the African-American kids in his, in his neighborhood in Tupelo and they go to the roadhouse and see the, the people grinding to a, a blues artist and then they run across the street to the, you know, the Pentecostal tent revival meeting. I mean, that's patently ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess, I guess that's supposed to give us the indication that, that everything we're seeing is kind of myth myth making as it were. And there's certainly been enough of that in Elvis's career, even before he uh, kicked the proverbial bucket. But, but here it's of course taken to a ridiculous Baz Luhrmann-esque degree. And and so I I was rolling my eyes a bit at that stuff and I just felt, okay, well, I guess this is the tone we're going to have for this movie. But, but once, but once it actually gets into him as a recording artist and as a performer, I feel like it, sticks reasonably close to what plausibly, you know, happened. I mean, there's enough uh, evidence of, of those early days, but, but, uh, you know, I feel like that some of it is misplaced, uh, you know, as, as the story goes on. And 
Um, but but for the most part, I did like I liked Austin. I mean, even even the later depressing years, I I thought that Butler was very good. You know, playing an older Elvis. So at, at least I didn't have that issue with with his portrayal. And uh, you know, I like the dynamic with his dad, um, played by Richard. I think Richard Roxborough, who's a really fine uh, Australian actor I know from a lot of Australian TV shows and, and previous uh, Lerman films uh, and and uh, the stuff with Priscilla I thought was really good but um, yeah I just wish the balance was a little different yeah by the time the last half an hour rolled around I was pretty much done with this movie uh, I think the high point emotionally was when he goes to Vegas and and has this he does the show he's always wanted to do and I like that but after that it was like oh yeah this is the drugs and uh, fat Elvis period and i know this story and they didn't bring much to it that i thought was terribly interesting now um but we should talk about the elvis movie from 1979 directed by john carpenter of course who's went on to great fame in the 80s with all his uh his genre pictures um and this was made for tv i'm really glad that you have it on blu-ray because it's hard to find it's 170 minutes long and kurt russell plays elvis uh, and here's a bit of trivia. Kurt, when Kurt was a child actor, he was in It All Happened at the World's Fair, where he actually has a scene where he's a kid. He kicks Elvis in the shins, I guess. Um, we start in 1969 when Elvis is about to launch his stand at the International Hotel in Las Vegas. He's full of doubt as to whether this is a good thing. He hasn't performed for audiences with the exception of that 68 comeback special for the better part of a decade. And his bodyguard is a guy named Red West, played by Robert Gray. And we learn that he's an old buddy from the high school who's been looking out for Elvis for years. And then we flash back to the early days with his mom, played by Shelley Winters, and his father, played by Kurt's own father, Bing. He's driving a truck. He's wanting to marry a sweetheart and be a musician and try to support his mother. It's a little slow going to start with, but... There are a few Carpenter hallmarks, like even for a TV movie, biopic, he knows how to move the camera. It's a pretty good-looking movie. Um, It certainly feels like it could have been made for the cinema. And we get a sense of Elvis' commitment to his mother and to his family and to his values in this film. A lot more than necessarily I felt like in the Lerman film. He, He gets that pink Cadillac for his mother, for the first of his financial success. Um, he secretly talks to his famous, infamous twin who was stillborn, Jesse. Um, and he does connect with Colonel Tom, who played played by Pat Hingle. And uh, he isn't in it much, actually, in this film. He still cuts kind of a manipulative figure, but he vanishes from the second half of the movie. Um, it's a pretty straightforward biopic, but generally, despite its conventional nature, I actually liked it quite a lot. I think the performances are good. I learned a lot about, I learned more about Elvis from that than I did from the Lerman film. I just felt like I, I was given, being given a more authentic uh, kind of connection with this this character. I really liked uh, Season Hubley as Priscilla. Um, most of her scenes are of her wanting him more of his time and not wanting him to spend so much time making music or touring or whatever. So that that's kind of a tiresome trope, you know, of the 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 wife character in in so many movies. Um, but uh, you know, she wants him to be a family man. But uh, you know, I thought that uh, she was otherwise quite good, and I really like seeing Ed Begley Jr. as a drummer. That's before <laughs> Spinal Tap. Um, and there's a role here for Joe Mantegna, uh, who plays one of Elvis's entourage. Yeah. Bill Esposito is road manager. So. Yeah. Uh, well, what did you make road of it, Stephen? It's, uh, I think it's, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I saw this when it uh, initially aired, and it was it was great to return to it. I, I was worried it wouldn't hold up, but I, I thought uh, Kurt Russell is terrific uh, in the role. You know, it would be so easy to go into caricature mode, especially as, I mean, this came out, I mean, in 79, uh, and uh, you know, it's not like anyone had really portrayed Elvis on screen before in, in a major way. So, uh 
you know, it would have been so easy to delve into caricature, but I think maybe because he had briefly known him as a kid, I guess, maybe he had a, a sense of the man. And, and, and I feel like it does give you a better idea of what it was like just to be Elvis on a day-to-day basis, you know, what it was like to live that life. And I feel that that's sort of what Carpenter is interested in. Interestingly enough, the script, uh, which, you know, I feel like the script could have been a little bit, bit better, a little more polished, but um, it was written by Anthony Lawrence, who was mostly a you know a TV writer. He wrote like Rat Patrol episodes and he wrote for Hawaii Five-0 and a bunch of other TV shows. Uh, but he also wrote the screenplays for Elvis movies, Roustabout and Easy Come, Easy Go, which we ah. mentioned earlier in the show. And, uh, and I guess maybe that's why they chose him to write this because he'd written at least two Elvis movies and, and had written a ton of stuff for television and, you know, was conscious of what writing for television means in terms of sticking to budget and that kind of thing. So uh, I think he was pretty much, you know, aside from those Elvis pictures, pretty much strictly a, a TV writer. But uh, uh, it's interesting that he had that kind of Elvis background, which I, you know, I hadn't realized until recently. So uh, I guess that gives maybe a little bit more insight in the script perhaps, but, but uh, it, it's great that it's out on Shout Factory. Uh, yeah. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Shout, Shout Factory put it out on, on Blu-ray. And um, it uh, it was released in theaters overseas in a cut-down version. They cut about half an hour or so out of it to put it uh, on the screen in Europe and elsewhere. But uh, but this is the full-length version. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, I thought it was decently paced and covered his life in a more even-handed kind of way. Yeah. And I think uh, Russell really looks like Elvis. It's another thing that really works. It's hard to believe this is two years from Snake Plissken and and <laughs> yes. three from McReady in, in those other, uh, you know, Carpenter films. And he, he looks so much younger in the hair and makeup. I mean, he, he just, uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm amazed how good he is in this. Though he doesn't, I think Austin Butler, who actually sings in the new Elvis movie, yes. moves more like Elvis. Like the dance and the performance sequences, uh, Austin Butler has got the edge on that. But, uh, but you know, Russell does the, the look um well i think austin butler probably worked for like three months with a movement coach which (laughs) certainly a tv movie wouldn't have that sort of luxury but uh but you know but yeah uh kurt has the swagger he's got uh he's he's got that angry brooding elvis down pretty well uh you know which is an important part of it the guy had a, a serious temper and we get to see that to some degree uh we get that weird scene where he's watching the footage of jack ruby shooting uh Lee Harvey Oswald in the basement of the Dallas police station and wishing he could be Jack Ruby <laughs> taking out Lee Harvey Oswald. I thought that was an interesting, interesting touch. Uh, and uh, maybe a segue into shooting television sets later on. So the, 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 there's some interesting oddball moments in the Carpenter film that kind of stand out and, and keep you watching. Well, hello and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears with myself, Stephen Cook, and Karsten Knox. On the other microphone, and today we are talking about Elvis in the movies. We just talked about a couple of Elvis biopics, the new one by Baz Luhrmann, which is still playing in theaters as we speak, and uh, the 79 made-for-TV, but also shown in theaters overseas, Elvis biopic starring Kurt Russell and directed by John Carpenter. Uh, Now, uh, of course, Elvis was a movie star. Uh, Almost uh, immediately after his first few hit records, Hollywood came a-calling, and uh, he was initially cast in Love Me Tender um, as in, a, in kind of a secondary role. He was playing like the younger brother of the main character. Uh, but of course, while they were filming, uh, Elvis's popularity continued to steamroll and, and snowball. And, and they realized what they had on their hands. So they 
A, uh, named it after an Elvis song. They got Elvis to record a song. He wasn't even supposed to sing in the movie. Uh, so they stuck in a couple instances of him singing, including Love Me Tender, which, of course, became one of his biggest hits and uh, beefed up his role a bit uh, as well in the part. It's a pretty traditional Western and, and not uh, nothing really special in terms of Westerns or, or Elvis movies, but but it shows that he has the charisma and knew how to handle himself in front of a camera and it basically allowed the studios to green light even more films. And he basically bounced around from studio to studio. He he made films for Warner Brothers. He made films for MGM. Uh, Paramount uh, was one of the studios he made many films for uh, uh, with producer Hal Wallace, who was kind of like his main Hollywood producer. And uh, and he also made films for Fox. So uh, basically, Colonel Tom, I guess, spread him around so that all the studios could get in a bidding war, I suppose. And then in the end, all get a piece of the action. Uh, very, very astute, I would say, on the Colonel's part. Uh, and uh, the uh, the general consensus is that the best Elvis films are the ones before he went into the army, when he still had that attitude, still had that swagger and the sneer. And uh, before the kind of, uh, as I said earlier, the, the rough edges got sanded off by Uncle Sam uh, while he served over in Germany. You know, the, f- the first film he makes when he gets uh, out of the army is G.I. Blues, where he's his hair is cut short and he's wearing the uniform and singing to a puppet. So, you know, all of a sudden any kind of threat or, or uh, you know, any, any of that kind of juvenile delinquent atmosphere that may have uh, lingered in the air around Elvis is pretty much gone by uh, by. 1960 or thereabouts. Uh, so uh, we focused in on a couple of films uh, for this segment. We thought, uh, I, I, I picked them. I mean, there's 32 films to pick from, most of them not very good. Uh, so I, I decided on King Creole, which is generally considered to be Elvis's best film, and Viva Las Vegas, which is maybe the most Elvis-y uh, Elvis movie. <laughs> see, I, that was the one I really wanted to see because I knew the title, I knew the song, and, uh, you know, I was curious to see how Vegas played a role and and why, you know, obviously for lots of reasons Elvis is associated with Las Vegas, but this was the, the movie, the movie reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's start with King Creole because yeah. it, it is a quality film, even if it wasn't an Elvis film, and, and that's why it sort of stands out. Like, if, if it had starred James Dean or or, you know, Tab Hunter, maybe even, uh, it still would have been a good movie. It was directed by Michael Curtiz, who uh, was known for films like Casablanca and, and many Errol Flynn swashbucklers, which apparently Elvis was quite fond of. And uh, he was known as a taskmaster, but by all reports, uh, he and Elvis got along. Elvis took direction from him very well. He was, you know, maybe he didn't have quite the same kind of movie star attitude that some of the other people that uh, Curtiz had worked for. I mean, he was famously warred with Errol Flynn. They were, you know, they, they were tooth and nail uh, trying to finish those films and and uh and here i think it was probably a much happier experience and it's uh it's also uh, got a great cast uh, walter Matthau is is the main bad guy is the the, the gangster who wants to control all of uh, the uh, new orleans nightclubs carolyn jones is the uh, sort of failed singer who's uh walter Matthau's uh, girlfriend but kind of dreams of a of a different kind of life of getting out of new orleans and getting away from this kind of cesspool that her life has become and you yeah, know. she was Morticia Adams. Who, exactly, of course, I, yeah. that was that was my association with her when I saw her as, as Ronnie. I was like, oh, I know that. <laughs> I know those eyes. Oh, yeah, Morticia Adams. She's in a lot of stuff, but basically, King Creole and Morticia Adams are like the two kind of pinnacles of of stuff that Carolyn Jones is known for. And she's she's you know she's great in both uh, instances. And and Elvis is uh you know Elvis is the the young uh, high school, he's a high school student. Which okay, there we got to suspend our disbelief a little bit. But uh, you know he's he's. Uh, 
he's kind of a he's a bit of a tough guy. You know, his his dad is is kind of a ne'er do well, and he's taking care of his family by working this job, cleaning up at a nightclub before he heads into school, and he's always getting into trouble because he's got one teacher who's always on his case and has a thing about you know you know flunking him, and he just wants to graduate high school and you know get on with his life. Uh, and and then he falls in with uh, some some other uh, some some actual juvenile delinquents who con him into helping them uh, assist in a not a heist, but a, like a massive shoplifting spree in a five and 10 store uh, by singing a song and distracting uh, the staff and customers while, while Vic Morrow and his gang just fill their pockets quite obviously and, and not convincing anybody uh, with goods from the store. And, and uh, you know, he kind of goes into the spiral. He gets sucked into Walter Matthau's web um, over the course of the film. Um, you know, despite having agreed to sing for the one uh, independently owned uh, nightclub on Bourbon Street, basically, and and uh, and meeting know. the sweet uh, Nellie, oh, yes. played by Dolores Hart, who's yes. who's like uh, a good influence on him because she's just, even though she kind of inadvertently or advertently helps him with his 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 thievery, uh, she she's just kind of sweet on him, and and she's clearly the good girl. Uh, you know, and he's torn between her and uh, and Ronnie, who is not the good girl, who's who's basically the the property uh, in quotes of Maxie, the very smooth, very evil Walter Matthau's character, uh, the gangster. Yeah, yeah. Th- I mean, this is a noir infected musical. It's the, I think the highlight for me was Elvis doing Trouble in the middle of Maxie's club one night. That was an amazing moment, uh, and it's really about the struggle for Danny's soul, what he's willing to do for a sense of power, direct how many rules he's willing to break and his associations with bad people send him down the bad path and debts that, uh, well, no honest man could pay, to paraphrase Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and, of course, people like Vic Morrow's shark, who is who is a kind of thug Danny doesn't want to be, but, you know, his associate is, is sort of stained by association. Um yeah, it's. Uh, I think Elvis is pretty good in this. I mean, he's not Marlon Brando or James Dean, but as much as he might want to be, but he's pretty good. And I think his being in this might be one of the least interesting things about the film. I think it's a stylish, moody picture with a lot of great New Orleans locations, great cast. Um, by the end, I actually started to like the noir more than the musical. I, I guess there were there's lots of moments of breaks for for Elvis to sing and I was just kind of like well let's get on with the story but but for the most part um, I, I really liked it I wasn't crazy about the ending I thought a character gets punished who I really thought didn't deserve it and Danny, you know, the, the Elvis character isn't implicated in any of that. That's a little hard to believe. <laughs> he basically gets off scot-free in a way that I just felt like the noir aspect of this felt like it was headed for a, a much darker, uh, you know, result for his character. But, you know, there it is. It's, a, it's an Elvis movie, I guess. You can't quite get away from that. Yeah, he can't send Elvis to jail. I mean, well, he'd already been in Jailhouse Rock, so I guess he'd already been in jail once <laughs> in a movie, which is also another fun movie. But it's not quite as well made as, as King Creole. Um there he's actually in jail at the start of the film and then has to get out of the clutches of his conniving former cellmate but um but i i like this film a lot i, I like that the new orleans setting is quite effective uh you know there's a fair bit of location i mean location work which helps which wasn't always the case in some of the elvis movies um i think that um you know there are moments where you can tell there's a there's a scene in a park where 
the park is clearly on a back projection screen, which, you know, I guess Curtiz had used that before in many, many other movies, including Casablanca. So uh, he felt it was uh, appropriate here. But I feel like, the, you know, movies had grown up a little bit and were beyond using those sort of cheap looking techniques. But, you know, most of these Elvis movies are made on a pretty tight budget. So uh, I'm surprised they got as much uh, New Orleans footage in there as they did. Uh, and, uh, and, th- and that helps a lot. And it's just weird watching Math- Walter Matthau be a bad guy. Uh, you know, this is obviously early in his career as well, but he's so good as Maxi that, uh, you know, he, he definitely lifts this uh, film above your, your, the average uh, Elvis movie for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about an average Elvis movie, <laughs> yeah. uh, Viva Las Vegas from 1964, directed by George Sidney, written by Sally Benson. Elvis plays Lucky Jackson. He's a mechanic who's waiting for a prize engine to, to be installed in his car to, so he can race in the Grand Prix in Vegas. His plan to beat his main competitor, Count Elmo Mancini, played by, uh, I want to try and make sure I get this this pronunciation right, though. Uh, Stephen, tell me if I'm wrong. Cesare Denova, is that right? Cesare Denova, yep. All right. So the problem, of course, is money, money, money. So Lucky, uh, at the t- at, in the mi- early on, Lucky and Elmo both spot the same lady, Rusty, played by Anne Margaret. But uh, they don't get her name, so cue a search through every casino joint up and down the strip as we get to see all the showgirls in their, in their finery. Um, finally, we find Rusty. She's working at a hotel pool as a swim instructor and cue a lot of scenes of Lucky and Rusty getting to know each other and singing and dancing. There is undeniable chemistry between these stars who are both at, you know, plenty fetching, there is no doubt. And there's a playful way about all this. Some great Vegas location cinematography, but it is one of the most poorly aged films I've seen in a long time. It's called the script flimsy is a massive insult to flimsy <laughs> things. There is really no story. The plot about his money woes and his racing dreams are pretty much forgotten for huge swaths so we can just hang out with him and the stars as they pilot helicopters and water ski on Lake Mead. It's also wildly sexist, with a susan of racism thrown in for fun, not to mention a heavy dose of rape culture in the songs and attitudes. It's really awful. I mean, if you wanted to explain what rape culture is to anyone, just tell them to pay attention to Elvis's lines in The Lady Loves Me, But She Doesn't Know It Yet. Or Anne Margaret's song, My Rival, where she sings about his love of his baby blue racing car while she makes sandwiches. It's really, <laughs> I just really struggled with a lot of that, unfortunately, seen from a, a modern lens. I, I couldn't enjoy it. I, I think the songs are okay. I think some of them are more memorable than the ones in King Creole. I really like the number where in the Jubilee 4 they dance on stage and the stage is in the shape of a roulette wheel, which segues into another song, uh, What I'd Say, I think, which is... Which Ray is, Charles tune. Yeah, which is amazing. And the race, when it, it comes, it's really exciting. Uh, but it takes for a while, a while to get to the race. Um, We've got to win this race. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the Italian Count, who's basically been his wingman throughout the film, his, and spoiler here, folks, for a movie that's 60 years old, but his Ferrari crashes out in a fireball. Elvis doesn't even look back. He wins the race, he gets married in a little Las Vegas chapel, and they don't even mention the other guy. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not even, <laughs> it doesn't feel, it's not even bad, it's just incompetent, some of the storytelling. And it, Anyway, so, yeah, I, I was left with a pretty kind of bad taste in my mouth, despite I can understand the sort of commercial appeal for all the music and all the, the glitz, but whew, yeah, problematic. Well, uh, yeah, I don't think Elvis movies are meant to be looked at through a modern lens. <laughs> I just can't, I can't help myself. Mistake. I can't help myself. <laughs> I, I, I do admit that I watched these with an, with an air of nostalgia and, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's very old. I mean, this is George Sidney. This is the tail end of his career. He, he just directed Anne Margaret and Bye Bye Birdie. And prior to that, he'd been making musicals for MGM, including some very good Gene Kelly movies like Anchors Away. And, and, uh, and I feel like, uh, you know, he was probably the last good director that Elvis worked with. Uh, this film definitely had a lot more care in terms of its production than the ones that would immediately follow. This is 1964. So we're six years after King Creole and it shows, uh, in some, in some degree. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I guess I'm not saying it's a good movie, but I'm saying it's a good Elvis movie. <laughs> okay. And fair enough. I haven't seen enough to be able to say, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going on to the sliding scale here, but it's, it, I think it is just because of the energy in, in those dance numbers and, and in the race and, Elvis is a little more game for this part than he would be in the movies that followed very rapidly after this. Uh, and, um, you know, and I, I, when he's working with like second string, third string directors, who, you know, are probably just doing single takes and moving on. Like, I think this might be the last time a director really tried to get a good performance out of him. Uh, and, uh, but I think he also knew the material is pretty lightweight at the same time. But anytime he's on screen with Anne Margaret, that the film works, uh, Anytime he's not, it you know the the like you say the machinations of whatever shreds of plot that there are um, really struggle to to hold one scene to the next. But having said that, uh, you know it's just the the Technicolor, the widescreen, the locations. I mean, I like the water screen at and at Fort at Lake Mead and the the helicopter rides and as a, even uh, on the commentary. I'm trying to remember who's doing the commentary on the Blu-ray, but it's. You know, talking about how that maybe the Las Vegas uh, Chamber of Commerce might have been one of the co-producers of this film. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Because I think in Las Vegas as a vacation destination was still a pretty novel idea, even even then, uh, certainly to middle America. I think, it, you know, maybe to flashier high rollers or whatever, that it was, it was definitely a, a destination. But as far as attracting a, sort of a middle-class crowd, I, th- I think uh, this is a film that kind of really changed things as far as Las Vegas goes, for better or for worse. I'm not a huge fan of the place but uh but i i do enjoy this film and it, it it is sort of the best example of this kind of period but uh yeah to go in expecting quality films i would i would stick with the the earlier ones uh, loving you perhaps king creole jailhouse rock uh or uh, maybe flaming star directed by don siegel more kind of a serious western um but uh you know if you if you want to get an idea of elvis at his hollywood peak uh, you know, when he was packing the drive-ins and, and double bills, this is the film to look at. Now, Stephen, you and I both have Elvis-adjacent stories. Yeah. Before we move into our Elvis-adjacent um, uh, segment of Lens Me Your Ears, uh, do you want to ta- start with yours? Uh, I, I mean, if if uh, from our professional lives, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, I just this week, uh, sadly, the great L.Q. Jones passed away. He was a very fine character actor and uh, and director. He's, I mean, his only real directorial effort is the dystopian sci-fi satire, A Boy and His Dog from the 1970s, which is one of those films that has to be seen to be believed, starring Don Johnson and a talking dog. Uh, but but it's it definitely is a film that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, but he was mostly known for being in Westerns, including many Sam Peckinpah films, um, uh, like uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and Major Dundee 
and I think he's in uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, amongst others. Uh, and he was just a just a welcome presence on the screen, just one of those reliable faces you'd see in mostly in westerns, but also in some other types of genre pictures. He's in a lot of war pictures. I think he worked with Sam Fuller in some some things, but he's in a, at least one Elvis movie. I think he might be in more than one. And uh, I got to interview him when uh, A Boy and His Dog came out on DVD, and just asked him about Elvis and working with Elvis in Stay Away Joe, which is a film that has aged even worse than Viva Las Vegas because <laughs> uh, Elvis is playing uh, a half Apache or half Navajo. I can't remember. He's, he's playing a member of an American First Nation tribe. I can't remember which one. but uh, And, uh, you know, the troubles that he has adjusting to modern society or life off the reservation or what have you. And uh, L.Q. Jones is one of his buddies. In the film, uh, it also has um, some other big stars. Burgess Meredith is in it, and Joan Blondell, great movie star from the 30s and 40s, um, is in it as well. But but L.Q. Jones talked about that uh, Elvis really liked working on this film because they were working on location in the American West, uh, which was a treat rather than being just stuck on the same old Hollywood soundstage. And uh, one of his favorite things to do off camera was to play touch football games with whoever was around, his Memphis Mafia pals and some of the other actors and so on. And he just remembers you know, joining in on, he was, he was actually an athlete himself in his college days. So he was joining in these games and just, that's when he got to see Elvis relaxed and having fun and enjoying being with his friends and being not stuck in Graceland or in a Hollywood uh, Beverly Hills mansion. And it was just kind of nice to hear about, you know, that down to earth side of Elvis. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. Well, my story uh, is of having, when I worked in film production back in the 90s, I worked on a on a TV movie in 99 with William Graham, who was a filmmaker, had a hell of a career, directed episodes of Batman and X-Files and a whole lot of TV movies. And he directed the last Elvis movie, Change of Habit, which also starred Mary Tyler Moore. Elvis plays a doctor in the film. And uh, uh, Graham said that Elvis was very polite, called him sir, very respectful to everyone on set. He knew his lines. He was hardworking. Um, but uh, Elvis wanted to be plausible as, an, as his character, as this doctor. So Graham suggested maybe Elvis should take the grease out of his hair and look a little more conservative, which, you know, doctors at the time looked like. So that's what Elvis did. And on set, Priscilla came up to the director and said, thank you, thank you. She said that because of all the furniture at Graceland is white, the grease from his hair would show up on everything and ruin the couches and chairs. And having uh, Elvis having taken that grease out of his hair made all the difference. And anyway, she, I guess she had been telling Elvis he should take the grease out of his hair for years and it <laughs> hadn't, hadn't ever take, taken. And now, uh, yeah, now that's, that's, that's a story that, uh, that William Graham told on the set of these movies, uh, you know, remembering the good times, I guess, working with Elvis back in the sixties. Yeah. A change of habit is not a great film, although it is notable for having Mary Tyler Moore as his female lead as a, as a nun who becomes enamored of, uh, Presley's doctor character, who's named Dr. John Carpenter, oddly enough. But you're right, it, it's Elvis goes from the greased look to the, the blow-dried look, the, the feathered hair, and that, that's the look that he would carry through into the 70s. And I can, I can see why Priscilla would uh, appreciate that change in, in hairstyle for sure. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Okay. 
Okay, now on our third segment of our look at Elvis and Elvis-related, Elvis-adjacent films, uh, we're talking now about the the adjacent, and there are a number of them. I mean, we could we could do a whole episode just on the films that have somehow Elvis in them. I mean, the first one that came to my head was True Romance from 1993, where uh, Val Kilmer plays an Elvis that we almost never see. We just sort of see in the corner as kind of a of a mentor to our lead character, Clarence, um, played by um, uh, Christian Slater, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great movie. Obviously, you know, Tony Scott thriller written by Quentin Tarantino. Um, there's also Mystery Train from 1989, the Jim Jarmusch film, which I actually haven't seen, but I really, it's still on my list. Uh, I gather it's on Criterion. Yeah, Criterion put it out on disc, and I believe it's on the Criterion channel, and it's a great kind of shaggy dog, multi-character Nashville-esque look at Memphis, I guess, with some great roles. That there's a young couple from Japan, young tourists, and they're they're always arguing over who's better, Carl Perkins or Elvis. Uh, and and you've got um, the great Screaming Jay Hawkins, who was kind of invoked in Stranger Than Paradise in name anyway, um, who shows up as a hotel clerk. Um, I don't know if he's the hotel clerk dressed in black from Heartbreak Hotel, but uh, he's he's terrific in in his roles and. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just an, an offbeat look at uh, at Memphis and kind of the ghost of Elvis that hovers over it still. Uh, right, and one of the films we did watch uh, around the, from that period as well is Wild at Heart from 1990, the David Lynch film adapting the novel by Barry Gifford. And I remember when that film came out, it was the movie to see in the late summer of 1990. It had won the Palme d'Or, and Lynch's reputation was pretty hot for what Blue Velvet had done for American cinema. And it was a summer also of Chris Isaac's Wicked Game, which was all over the radio, and it's from this film's soundtrack. Now, Wild at Heart is nowhere near as subversive as Blue Velvet, and it's full of patented Lynchian weirdness. Very entertaining film, I found. Uh, I mean, it's the part, there's a part where Crispin Glover plays a guy named Dell who likes to put cockroaches in his underwear, and that's not even the weirdest thing in the movie. Uh, it might be the guy whose hand gets shot off and the dog that runs away with it. Um, but <laughs> it, there is an operatic power to the film. It's, it's an noir. It's also a black comedy. It's way over the top. Um, watching it again the first time since 1990, I appreciated, I think, the the energy of it and the comedy. It's a lot funnier than I remembered. Uh, I don't know if it amounts to much, but anyway, uh, it's about Sailor, played by Nicolas Cage, who wears a snakeskin jacket as a symbol of his individuality, and Lula, played by Laura Dern. He's a disciple of Elvis, clearly doing Elvis impersonation throughout the film. She's a disciple of Sailor, I guess. And they're very much in love. But Lula's mom, Marietta, played by Dern's actual mother, Diane Ladd, has has a really he's really she's not she's opposed to the union and that's the crux of the the the, the, the gist of the story and that's basically. an understatement <laughs> she is very opposed and uh hires a guy to kill him and you know and another guy to investigate where they've got they've run off to new orleans and and so we get this this host of great character actors harry dean stanton and j.e freeman and uh willem dafoe as bobby peru a man with maybe the worst dentistry, uh, the most worth dental work in in cinema history. He's up there anyway. Um, And there's all this Wizard of Oz illusions as well. It's not entirely coherent, but I appreciated the power of the imagery, uh, the music, and, uh, you know, frequent use of music by metal band Power Mad and also Coco Taylor, who shows up in one scene. And and I guess the chemistry between Cage and Dern. I mean, they their passion for each other. Uh, you know, they, they've got a, a... They're deeply in love with each other. There's a lot of sex. It's, uh, you know, it's... 
there's things to enjoy about the film. There, there really are. I, I remember seeing it uh, at an early screening at the Oxford Cinema when it came out. And, uh, you know, of course, just Twin Peaks have been so hot and everybody couldn't wait to see the next David Lynch thing. And I remember feeling a bit disappointed at the time that it was, it just felt like, you know, all pony and no show or something. Like that. It just, it just <laughs> was, I, I just thought it was kind of rambling and incoherent and, and uh, you know, violent for the sake of being violent and and I think that stuff's all still true but I think you know with diminished expectations watching it uh, again I, I feel like uh, I can enjoy it a lot more as, as the patchwork quilt of of oddities that it is uh, it's still wildly uneven and not everything in it works but but Cage and Dern are so good together and I, I think I appreciated Cage's uh, performance a lot more like I feel I almost feel like Lynch was directing him to play it as if he was Elvis or as, mm. a, as an Elvis character and I think that um, determines a lot of what he does and uh, and it's great to see the people like Harry Dean Stanton um, J.E. Freeman as the kind of sinister criminal Santos who was so great in Miller's Crossing as Eddie Dane it's great to see him here he's still menacing as heck yeah here I, I was wondering like Jay Freeman for like three or four years was in everything yeah and then he sort of vanished and I was like what happened to Jay Freeman well sadly he passed away in 2014 I had no idea hmm. yeah but uh but yeah I, I, I'm still not sold on this as being like a truly great movie but, no, I don't think it is. But, no, uh, I'm with you there. Because uh, I know some people really, really do love it. But I, I do get more of a kick out of the sort of weird Elvis, Wizard of Oz uh, kind of uh, juxtaposition, I guess, like Lynch is trying to get at the heart of these American myths, as it were, and uh, in this uh, insane road movie. And, you know, for for that, it's highly entertaining. But, but uh, you know, I... Go in with tempered expectations if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, even if you're a David Lynch fan who you've seen some of his other stuff and you haven't seen this, I don't think it is his his greatest film by any stretch. But it is entertaining, um, and it has that sort of larger than life quality. And the the editing and the use of music and imagery, I think, is the best part of it. And you know, there are little asides. Like I love the conversation between Sailor and Lula. I guess they're you know post coital and they've. They're about when they started smoking. Sailor says he started smoking when he was four and his mom had already died from lung cancer at that point. Like, it's just, it's so bleak and twisted. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there is a very dark vein of humor through this that I, uh, I appreciated. Um, now, uh, we should mention before we go on our, our look uh, at Elvis and Elvis-related uh, cinema, Bubba Hotep. From 2002, written and directed by Don Coscarelli. Uh, Coscarelli, is that what do you think? Don Coscarelli. Coscarelli. Thank you, sir. I'm glad you've got these pronunciations down. <laughs> um, this is a strange little cult movie. I think it's largely hinged on the wild charisma of Bruce Campbell, and of course, Bruce Campbell has his own, you know, serious fan base. Uh, he could there could be Bruce Campbell, uh, you know, conventions on the yearly basis. Maybe there is, and I don't even know about him. There probably has been a Bruce Con at some point. But. Yeah, um, he plays. Elvis, who is living in the late 1990s, and you know, uh, I guess around the time the film was made, in a retirement home in East Texas. Now, years before, so the story tells us, he traded his identity with an Elvis impersonator, hoping for a better life, pretending to be himself. But he got stuck after quote Elvis died, and no one believed that he was the real thing. It's kind of a perverse conceit, but there it is. Now he's in a nursing home, feeling sorry for himself and his his aging body because he's old and infirm, and his only friend really is Jack, played by Ozzie Davis, who believes he's President John F. Kennedy, who says he, had his, he survived the assassination attempt and had his skin dyed black. 
All of this is nutso, but it just gets weirder <laughs> since the film isn't just some bizarre character study but or an examination of past celebrity or regret. It's it's not e- I mean it is these things. It's about a movie about trying to maintain your dignity as you get older. But it's also a horror comedy. An undead mummy, the Bubba Hotep of the title, is preying upon the residents of this nursing home manifesting massive black scarabs and the like and stealing people's souls. Uh, oh, and the mummy is also kind of a cowboy. It's, it's, uh, this is not a bad movie. It's certainly unique and worth watching. I found it a bit slow going, but, uh, I don't know that it entirely works as a horror. It's just, it's so cheesy, but. They, <laughs> yeah, but, I wouldn't say it's a good horror movie, but no. it is, you know, as a comedy with horror elements goes, it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it is very, I can't even compare it to anything. It's unique as a storyline. It is entirely unique in a way that I think is is pretty impressive. Yeah, Coscarelli is best known for the phantasm horror movies, which are marked by a silver ball that flies through the air and drills into people's brains. And uh, a mysterious sort of mortician played by Angus Scrim, the tall man. Uh, who's just really creepy, uh, and uh, but doesn't get a whole lot to do other than chase people and you know say things in a stentorian voice. But but uh, I, I feel like he's got a good handle on this material. I, I feel like it was kind of a labor of love with a very low budget, uh, and sometimes it's I think it's sometimes limited by that budget in terms of locations and some of the stuff that it's doing. But but it is a lot of fun. It has a great spirit, and there's lots of great Elvis in-jokes scattered throughout. So I, and, and Campbell it, it really is having fun with the part in a big way, and that uh, that enthusiasm, I think it, it really pays off. Yeah, for sure. Um, people might want to check out Elvis and Nixon from 2016 if you can believe Michael Shannon as Elvis. <laughs> I don't know if you can. I thought he was really fun in the movie. Uh, apparently, I think he's sort of channeling... Uh, Christopher Walken, who played Elvis in a in a musical theater production in, on Broadway. But uh, it just feels like that. If you can imagine Michael Shannon as Christopher Walken as Elvis, then maybe check out Elvis and Nixon. It's uh, based apparently on a true story about them meeting once in 1973. And thus we end Elvis and Elvis has left the building, I think it's time to say here on Lensmere Ears. Thank you so much for listening to us ramble on about, about movies. Again, my name is Karsten, and uh, I have a Twitter handle. You can find it actually named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And I'm on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, Lensmere Ears has a Facebook page. It has its own Twitter handle if you'd like to get in touch and, you know, give us some feedback or, uh, or even suggest uh, topics for the future. We're up for that. Thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5. Also, thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for uh, all that you do to make us sound good. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll be talking about movies again very soon. Stephen and Karsten have left the podcast. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.